Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey there, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues. On this month's show, we're discussing trauma. People are living with the effects of trauma every single day here in Baltimore. And there are many reasons why people are traumatized. They may be survivors of physical or sexual abuse. People close to them have been the victims of homicide. They may have been in accidents or had major medical emergencies or shocking and sudden life changes. Whatever reason people experience trauma, many of them will develop PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder which can help shape their lives in all kinds of different ways. Today on the show, we're looking at how trauma and PTSD affect people's lives in Baltimore. Later in the show, we'll talk to Baltimore City Councilman Zeke Cohen about his legislation that would mandate city agencies to use trauma-informed practices when delivering services. We'll also talk to Tim Phillips, founder and CEO of Beyond Conflict, about how using a trauma-informed lens helps with peace and reconciliation on an international scale in places like South Africa and Northern Ireland. But first, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Sinclair. He's the associate professor at the Morgan State University School of Social Work and has worked extensively both with urban youth and returning citizens. Dr. Sinclair, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. So, so first, I'd like to just ground our listener in what exactly we're, we're talking about. So can you clarify what we mean by trauma and, and, and what we mean by post-traumatic stress for people? Post-traumatic stress and trauma, they are often used interchangeably. Post-traumatic stress is a diagnostic term that's used often in the mental health industry. And what that means is a person has experienced something that is life-threatening and overwhelms their capacity to cope. It could be witnessing somebody getting shot, somebody getting stabbed, or some assaultive act. What happens after that? It changes not only the neurobiology, but it changes the way a person responds to other events throughout their life. Some of the symptoms that we take a look at is, is a person having flashbacks or reoccurring nightmares, or they may have a depersonalization, or they may have a inability to concentrate. These are all symptoms of a larger issue. It's the constellation of symptoms that create this diagnostic criteria called post-traumatic stress disorder. But one of the more profound or one of the most important symptoms is what we call the startle effect. Lay people will probably know this in their personal experiences. I'm not sure if you had somebody um, when you grew up in perhaps in high school or middle school that you stepped on their shoe and they wanted to take your head off. That type of response can be a symptom of post-traumatic stress. What it is is the person loses their ability to modulate an incident or episode, and they go right back to that traumatic incident. So they respond as if you're trying to kill them, and it's actually something small and minor. So that startle effect, often that's a telltale that they may have experienced some trauma. Oftentimes our young people, particularly in urban communities with fragile families are misdiagnosed. What they'll see is a, a child's inability to concentrate, and they'll say, oh, he may have ADHD, or the child may be depressed. 
and, and they're going to say, oh, this child may be depression. And we kick them with, you know, psychopharmaceuticals. But we're not taking a look at the situations at home and the adverse childhood experiences and sometimes the trauma they've experienced, both domestically and in the community. You're also talking about something that actually is a physical manifestation mm -hmm. in the brain as well. So this is not imagery. This is not make-believe. This is actually a physical change to, this, to the brain. It changes the brain. It changes the front cortex. It changes the amygdala of the brain. When that change happens, it, it, it changes the way that we respond to our executive functions. It changes the way that responds to stimuli within the community. It, it changes our decision-making. And sometimes it even changes in a, in a way that it makes us more prone and more vulnerable to opioids and other drugs because we're looking to put that part of the brain at ease. It's a natural phenomenon. And we have this natural ability to have a fight-or-flight response to an immediate crisis, and it floods our body with cortisones and, and adrenaline. Of course, that's good when you're in the middle of the woods and, you know, a tiger gets you. But what happens when you're in the middle of the streets of Baltimore and somebody pulls a gun on you? And those floods of hormones cannot readjust themselves, and you're now perpetually in a state of crisis. You know, one of the things about um, trauma that I, I would be remiss if I did not mention, trauma is not only an individual phenomenon. It's something that is experienced by communities and families, and, and families when they experience trauma and communities where they experience trauma. Systems can actually mitigate and or exacerbate the trauma that families are experiencing. We're also talking about some of our most vulnerable or some of our youngest. Yes. How should we be thinking about and introducing a trauma-informed lens in our schools, knowing that these are children? who in many cases are dealing with the type of trauma and, and, the type of, and the type of stress that, you know, we wouldn't wish upon anybody. We need to train our teachers and our administrators and our faculty and our janitors and the nurses and, and people in the cafeteria to identify symptoms of trauma and be able to give them access to resources. We need to do that in a, with our children at a very early age because we know the deleterious effects that trauma will have along a lifespan. We need to take a look at it and create this cultural transformation. Several years ago, we had this societal conversation about putting safety plugs in your, mm -hmm. in your outlets. And everybody was like, okay, that's, that makes common sense. I want us to address trauma like we need to put safety plugs in every house. We need to get fire alarms in every house. We need to have that type of understanding that trauma has some long-term effects, and we haven't begun to see some of the effects in Baltimore City. We're, we're actually in the middle of the storm right now. Our young people are yearning for this type of approach, where they're like, you need to help us heal from this trauma. When we talk about the things that need to be done to be able to treat it, if someone's listening to it and say, you know what, I think everything he's saying is absolutely right. How do we treat it? What do we do? What does that look like? What exactly is the response? We need to destigmatize trauma. We need to have people understand that, you know, these are normal responses to abnormal situations. We need to talk about resiliency. But also, we need to talk about psychopharmaceuticals. We need to make sure people have access to that. We also need to talk about trauma in its relationship to the crime and violence that's happening in Baltimore. It has to be a multi-phase, multi-pronged approach to dealing with trauma. I don't want people to get into the room and say that they have the one solution. It's multiple solutions. 
over long periods of time, and we all have to chip in to change a culture. You know, we're not talking about just changing an individual. We're changing the way that we take a look at um, violence and, and the dynamics of interpersonal and community violence. It's also the dynamic of intergenerational. Yes, indeed. Trauma. Intergenerational trauma is even more insidious. The reason why I say it's more insidious is because our country has not acknowledged the trauma that it has created in peoples of color and people of African descent. We have not address that issue, and we almost act as if that is not going to have an impact. And we know as scientists that trauma has an intergenerational component. We take a look at the Holocaust, and we can acknowledge it there. But when it comes down to urban communities, particularly fragile families, uh, which majority of them are people of color, we tend to say, well, that doesn't have an impact. And we see it play out every day. We see our families not being able to deal with the trauma and hurt people hurt people. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I hear some families say that, you know, you spare the rod, you spoil the child. And we ended up abusing our children because of the abuse that we've experienced. And that really dates back to the period when we were enslaved, you know. So, again, it, it reverberates in our community. And until we can face that and really identify and really just say, you know, this has happened and acknowledge that and validate that, we're really sweeping things under the rug. There's something also about the impact of trauma, not just impacting the victim of it, that it impacts entire ecosystems. It's contagious. Yeah, it's contagious. I mean, you, you you call it vicarious trauma. Yes. If a young person is walking down the street, coming home from school, and he's with a, a group of his friends, as you know, many young people do, um, and they get caught up into a fight, and one person pulls out a gun and, and kills another young person. The victim, obviously, is dead. And we talk about the victim, but we don't talk about the perpetrator. We don't talk about the witnesses that have witnessed this heinous crime. No child in that vicinity is not touched by that incident. Now, we need to move forward, and we need to explore this from a 300-foot level. Every family now it's impacted. For all those children, let's say there was 10 children in that group, all 10 families have been impacted by that episode of violence. Those people who have been witness to it, and vicarious trauma, they have lost, in some respects, their ability to negotiate conflict on their own. And, and it's a very normal response. You know, you got me once, you're not going to get me again. So this time now they're they're walking around with weapons themselves because they saw what happened to one of their friends that just got hurt. And they're like, you know, that's not going to happen to me. So they carry weapons. And you see how it perpetuates it? It creates this cascade of events where all these children now don't feel safe. They don't feel that the systems are going to respond. They don't feel that the parents could protect them. They don't feel that the schools could protect them. They need to protect themselves. And that creates an environment ripe with violence, you know, interpersonal violence. Violence is contagious, and trauma can be contagious. One final question is, if Baltimore is serious about getting this right, and we were to ask you, where should we look to? What place did it right? Where would you say? We need to look within. (laughs) We need to look within Baltimore. 
I think that we can learn from certain models across the country, but it may not be a perfect fit. It's not like a recipe where we could say, oh, this worked in Philadelphia, uh, so it's going to work in, in Baltimore City. It has to be somewhat indigenous and organic. I really would say that we could take a look at models, and this is where institutions like Morgan State University and, and Coppin and so many other institutions that have been doing this work for a year could be a clearinghouse for information and models. But then we also need to speak to the people in the community because if we're going to impose this on them, it's not going to work well. We need to be embedded in the community and give voice to those in the, in the community and say, what do you need? To, to heal. So it's it's a dynamic that um, I say to my students, social work is not something you do to someone. It's something you do with someone. It's a delicate dance. So looking for a model, we look for the science, we look for the research, but we also have to talk about the people in the community and getting them involved in the process because they're the ones that's going to make it sustainable. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Sinclair, the associate professor at the Morgan State University School of Social Work. Dr. Sinclair, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for your leadership. Thanks so much for, for paying attention to something that needs attention paid to. My pleasure. Bless me. I'm Mark Gunnery, producer for Future City, and I'm here in studio with Sam Kerr. Sam is outreach organizer and syringe service provider for Baltimore Harm Reduction Coalition. That's an organization that mobilizes community members in support of people targeted by the war on drugs and anti-sex worker policies, all while using a trauma-informed approach. Sam Kerr, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First, can you start by telling us what Baltimore Harm Reduction Coalition is and the work that you all do? Yeah, Baltimore Harm Reduction Coalition is a group of people that provide harm reduction services throughout the city. We are a syringe service provider, and also I and three other people backed by BHRC um, are in the Bridges Coalition. And so we have not only like on the ground stuff, but we also do policy work. And so right now my colleagues are headed to Annapolis to testify for a paraphernalia decrim bill. And what is that bill? We are in favor of decriminalization for all paraphernalia. So we're talking about syringes that may be on people and things like even down to lighters. All of that stuff, we would love to have that decriminalized so that we can try to reduce the amount of harm and trauma that we're causing people that carry those kinds of supplies. So what is harm reduction? So harm reduction is quite a few different things. There are a bunch of definitions for it. The way that we see harm reduction is on an individual level, giving people the opportunity to have as much information as humanly possible to know about the harm associated with what they're doing, but also the ways that they could do it the least harmful way. Um, and then on an institutional level, harm reduction looks like trying to have policies in place that make it safer for people who use drugs, people that engage in sex work, and people in general to avoid criminalization for the acts that they're doing and just the lives that they're living. How do you incorporate an understanding of trauma into the work that you do? I mean, personally, the way that I think about trauma, it is if you are a person that has a trauma history, you bring that into everything that you do and every space that you're in. Um, so in the Baltimore Harm Reduction Coalition, like the way that we operate as 
colleagues is tailored towards a trauma-informed approach. Like knowing about people's past histories and knowing that there's trauma associated with that and then trying to move in a way where we don't re-traumatize someone, but also that doesn't involve us like meddling or sticking our hands in it. And how do you incorporate this trauma-informed lens in the work that you're doing with the syringe services or with outreach or services for sex workers? It looks a lot like being kind and being open, a lot of active listening to hear little pieces because not everybody just comes out and says, hey, I'm in this traumatizing situation or this horrible thing happened. It takes a lot of listening and paying attention to body movements and actions to see um, if there's something there. And you can move from just the active listening to having an open conversation about what's going on and then trying to make sure that we provide what we can for the traumatized person or for the people involved. So people who use drugs and sex workers are often heavily policed, especially in Baltimore. How does trauma affect policing here in Baltimore? I feel that the way that question is asked is funny because I feel like it's how is policing affect the people that are traumatized. I think that it would be fantastic to have police officers trained in trauma-informed care. I'm not entirely sure that when they are called to certain situations that they're the best people to handle those situations. I think that um, the history that we have in Baltimore City with policing affects everyone, but particularly those marginalized groups and particularly Black people in a way that we have this like historical amount of trauma that communities have faced, but not only communities, but also individuals in those communities. I think it's hard for both sides. I'm definitely more on one side than I am the other, but I think it's hard for both sides to kind of operate in a way that is safe and helpful whenever people are stigmatized and traumatized on one end and people are uninformed on how to help those people on the other end. Government agencies and police officers need more education whenever it comes to the everyday lives of people who use drugs and sex work in Baltimore City. But on a small scale level, like on the today level, like we can do the decriminalization of the paraphernalia, we can open an overdose prevention site or pilots for them. Like those kinds of things not only help people that use drugs, but also help sex workers. Collective care in general of like community care is really a thing that we need. And I think that once we start to open up community care and talk to not just the the few people we meet in community, but connect with other organizations and reach a broader audience, we can start to talk about collectively what is traumatizing people or how they've been traumatized in the city and what we can do to change that. And I think that that move will help us to push more policy and keep moving forward. I've been talking to Sam Kerr. Sam is outreach organizer and syringe service provider for Baltimore Harm Reduction Coalition. And Sam, thanks for joining us on Future City. Thanks for having me. We have to take a brief break, but do not go away. When Future City comes back here on WIPR, we'll zoom out from Baltimore and look at trauma on an international level. How are people using trauma-informed perspectives to bring about truth and reconciliation in places where people have been traumatized by war and oppression, like South Africa and Northern Ireland? All that and more right after the break. Welcome back to Future City, WYPR's monthly show where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. I'm your host, Wes Moore. Now, today on the show, we are discussing trauma. In the last segment, we talked about how it affects people here in Baltimore. Now we're going to take a global perspective and explore how trauma-informed practices have been used for peace building in places where people have been traumatized by war and violence. 
Joining us to discuss this is Tim Phillips. Tim Phillips is the founder and CEO of Beyond Conflict, an organization that creates frameworks for peace talks, national reconciliation, and transitions to democracy in over 75 countries, including facilitating the establishment of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission and helping with the peace process in Northern Ireland. And he's someone who I've learned from for quite a bit of time, and I am thrilled to have him on the show. So, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Wes. It's a real privilege being on the show and, and getting to know you. This question really could not come at a more important time in our city, in our country, in our, in our, in our world's history, uh, because these are serious issues that we have to grapple with. But I wanted to first ask you to center our listeners and just tell us about Beyond Conflict and the work that you do. Beyond Conflict is uh, approaching its 30th anniversary. Essentially, Beyond Conflict has worked in close to 75 countries around the world. And our approach is a very humble and I think a very powerful one. And it's really the notion of shared human experience. We bring together leaders at different levels who once imagined that change was difficult or impossible and came through a process in their own country where they've learned to, in a sense, humanize the other, engage with the other, and find common cause with the other that change is possible. It is difficult, but it is possible. Starting in Eastern Europe in 1991 and 92, and then working in South Africa, Central America, Northern Ireland, the Balkans, and other places, we very much brought together people who had been bitter enemies uh, in the past to share their experience with people who were bitter enemies at that moment. And as you know, more recently in the last decade, uh, we started exploring brain and behavioral science. There are a lot of conflicts that are intractable and a lot of peace agreements that are fragile. And so we started looking at what are we missing? And that's when we started looking at science. How did you first put that into action, the idea of, of using brain science to help shape work on geopolitical conflict resolution? About 12 years ago, I was teaching a course at a university here in, in Boston, and it was, on, uh, it was called Conflict Transformation in the 21st Century, the Human Dimension, because I felt like a lot of the conflict resolution theory that I'd seen out there was kind of light and missing, you know, the human experience of what people really struggle with. And so in this class, I would have a speaker come in every other course or every other class. Uh, in one class, I had Jerry Adams come in from Northern Ireland, who, as you or some of your listeners may know, was one of the top Sinn Féin Irish Republican Army leaders in Northern Ireland. A student said, you may have tried to kill many people and people may have tried to kill you or friends of yours. How do you sit across the table for people who have, have done that? And he paused and he said, you know, you can't make peace with a humiliated partner. Mm. And it was a retired neuroscientist sitting in the room and he came up and he had been auditing the class and he came up to me and he said, you know, there's a lot of brain science behind these themes of humiliation and empathy I've heard. And I remember asking him, what do you mean brain science? And he said something so powerful. He said, well, speaking as a scientist, he said, we are not rational beings with emotions. In fact, we're just the opposite. We're emotionally based beings who can only think rationally when we feel that our identities are understood and valued by others. And that led me on a journey to look at what we can learn from brain and behavioral science. When you add on the lay of trauma, it has a deep, profound, emotional, physiological, and biological sort of cloak on you 
on top of everything else, that we need to feel understood, not as you describe us, but as we experience the world. And that's, I think, one of the most important lessons, even without science, but science sort of affirms and confirms it because they can see it happening in the brain, is that our capacity to listen to others is dependent on feeling heard. And that need for feeling heard is particularly acute in people who have been marginalized, oppressed, and humiliated either their entire lives or their community's uh, history. And that's a profound truth. You know, we have to understand each other by allowing people to feel understood. And that's one of the central lessons. You know, as a non-scientist, I was blown away by learning that our brains evolved to be predictive and not reactive. So literally in milliseconds, all the time, unconsciously, our brain is scanning our environment and asking what do others think about me and my group. When you don't feel safe in your own community, in your own self, you're constantly on guard. The levels of stress, the levels of anxiety, the levels of anger, and you're talking about trauma, are significant. And so to feel understood is a process, I think, that we as Americans, as people in Baltimore, as citizens of the world, as human beings, have to recognize the need for feeling understood because just reflect on oneself. We all want to feel understood. Can you explain to people what you mean by when you say truth and reconciliation commissions? And what exactly does that have to do with healing trauma? In the 70s, when there was a whole bunch of military dictatorships around the world, particularly in, in South America, Central America, Africa, many other countries, Spain under Franco and so forth, you know, there was a, uh, a collapse of some of these dictatorships in Chile and Argentina in particular. And so these new democratic governments came in. And the big question is, how do we restore democracy, build respect and legitimacy for these new democratic governments, but deal with the fact that a lot of people were killed, tortured and disappeared, tens of thousands of people in Argentina and Chile, for example. The difficulty was in both places, the military didn't go to prison. They just went back to the barracks. And the question was, all right, we need to unfortunately compromise. So how do we build respect for democracy and begin to heal and be honest about what people experienced when these military, these armies could come back into power. So the idea is we need to have truth. We need to hope that it leads to reconciliation, but we also have to make some compromises. So that was sort of the model in the 70s and 80s. Then South Africa happens. So they came up with this notion of we certainly want truth. But we also want reconciliation and we'll give people a chance to admit to their crimes and their behavior and then figure out a way to really begin to heal the wounds of this country. One thing we know for certain, and by the way, the science research shows this, when you have two communities in quote unquote contact and dialogue, the marginalized, oppressed community needs to be heard first. It goes to feeling understood. But what happened in South Africa is Mandela said, not only do I want a country, but in the late 1980s, before Mandela was even released for, from prison, people like Albie Sachs, Desmond Tutu, Oliver Tambo, these other members of the ANC national executive, they said, we have to understand where the Afrikaner people came from. How did they create apartheid? What did they experience? They're not going back to a country in Europe like 
white South Africans of a British background who literally had a British passport. These Afrikaners are going to stay here. In a sense, they're the only white tribe of this continent. And what they started realizing, and this is coming from people like Albie Sachs and Oliver Tambo, is that we realized that we couldn't hold the Afrikaner people collectively responsible for apartheid because they would never engage. And we went through our own sort of process of learning about what they experienced under the English in concentration camps or the Boer War or, you know, uh, ethnic cleansing. And we realized that we had to articulate and communicate to the Afrikaner people that we're not going to throw you out of the country and we're not going to hold you collectively responsible. And think of that. It is like giving your oppressor some of your moral capital to create the space to engage. It's a powerful lesson. It can be difficult when you're angry, when you've been marginalized, when you feel pain. And it's not saying that you now have to go the extra mile, but we're dealing with humans, right? And the question is, how do we navigate that? And I think going back to your question about truth and reconciliation for this country and also Baltimore, I think there's a real opportunity to learn from some of these examples and update this and try to create a new process. If you look at every single commission that has then taken place, whether it was in Canada uh, and what happened with indigenous people in schools, whether it was Northern Ireland, whether it was South Africa, it was led by the government. The government had to take a real leadership role in, in, in this taking place and this happening. Can you see something like this happening where, where it's, uh, it's led or it's initiated or it's, or, it's, uh, or it's built by someone else other than a governmental leader? Oh, absolutely. So in the case of Guatemala in the early 90s, where we were involved in that process, it was actually organized by the church, the Catholic Church in Guatemala. And there was um, Archbishop Girardi was the head of the Truth Commission. Unfortunately, he was assassinated after the release of the report. And I knew him and we did some work with him. But the church led the process of truth and reconciliation in Guatemala. In the case of other countries, it wasn't necessarily done by the government. It was done by either religious organizations or in El Salvador after the signing of the peace accords. The UN stepped in and did that. So I think in this country, and it's, I think, a really interesting conversation to have going forward. And one of the things that we had talked about is what would it be to look like for cities, not officially cities necessarily, but leaders from different cities coming together and saying, how do we really take a look at the legacy of racism in this country, what it does to us as not just, in my case, a, a, a white American, but African-Americans and people of color and others? What has this done to our nation and our capacity to really live a life of dignity and recognizing that we have to deal with this trauma? The last thing I'll say is what people have told me who have survived torture you know, in the most profound sense and violence, it, what was cathartic for them is when they felt the perpetrator was deeply hurt emotionally and in a sense traumatized themselves because they recognized that what they did to them was profoundly wrong. And that had a huge impact on the survivor. I've been speaking with Tim Phillips. Phillips is the founder and CEO of Beyond Conflict, an organization that creates frameworks for peace talks national reconciliation, and transitions to democracy. He joined us from Boston. Tim Phillips, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you, Wes. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. You're listening to Future City here on WYPR, and I'm your host, Wes Moore. We have to take a very brief break, but do not go away. When we come back, we'll zoom back into Baltimore and discuss one council member's push to turn Baltimore into a trauma-responsive city. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, the host of Future City here on WYPR. Each month on Future City, we explore innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues. We look at smart solutions from around the world and ask, can they happen here? Are they already happening here? On this month's show, we're discussing trauma. Before the break, we heard about how people are using knowledge of trauma to shape international conflict mediation and truth and reconciliation projects between formerly warring parties. And now, we're bringing it back home to Baltimore. In January, the Baltimore City Council unanimously passed the Trauma Responsive Care Act. The legislation is meant to ensure that city agencies that interact with children and families are equipped with the proper training and resources to respond in ways that take trauma into account. Joining us to discuss this legislation is Zeke Cohen. Zeke Cohen is a Baltimore City Council member who represents the 1st District in Southeast Baltimore. Council Member Cohen was also one of the architects and leaders behind this legislation. Council Member Cohen, Zeke, it is great to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Wes. Before we get into the detail of what the legislation does, why did you want to even introduce legislation that deals with the issue of trauma? This started for me about a year and a half ago. We had what in pretty much any other place in this country you would call a mass shooting in my district over in O'Donnell Heights. Just after 3.45 p.m., some men pulled up into the housing project right by the playground and shot it up. This was right after Graceland Park and Hollywood Academy had dismissed. So 38 bullets fired, four people shot, children ducking and diving to avoid being hit by bullets. Just a horrific scene with blood on the pavement, with young people fearing for their lives, with senior citizens trying to walk home. I went the next day to go visit Hollibird Academy, and it was as if nothing had happened, right? There was no crisis intervention. There was no flood of clinicians or social workers. There was no real conversation happening. And I'll never forget one little girl speaking to me and talking about what it was like to grab her two-year-old brother hide behind a slide and just hope that they didn't get hit. And as she's speaking to me, her hand is trembling and I can see her starting to get visibly upset. About a month later, we held a hearing in the Education and Youth Committee to address youth violence. And there were a few students that came forward from Frederick Douglass High School. And this was just a couple of weeks after they had suffered from a school shooting in their school, a man came in, shot a school staff member during class, so young people had to duck in place. They heard the gunshots ring out, and the students looked at us, the city council, and said, look, why is it that all we hear out of your mouths is talking about policing and different policing strategies and who's the police commissioner? Why don't you apply that same level of vision and focus and rigor and analysis 
to dealing with trauma, which underlies so much of the violence that we see. And in the way that only young people can, they went through each and every adverse childhood experience and talked about how being homeless had impacted their lives, talked about food insecurity, talked about witnessing violence, talked about having a parent that was substance use disordered, addicted, and incarcerated, uh, and then talked about having the one safe space that they had, which was their school, be violated. They said it's not about just the physical infrastructure of the building. It's about the lack of health and mental health infrastructure that we go through these experiences and no one is doing anything about it. And so why aren't you, the city council, leading and legislating when it comes to trauma? I'll tell you, that hit me really hard as a former teacher, as someone who spent my career working with young people, that they were absolutely right, that we have not tackled this issue. We have sat back. We are in a town that has some of the best medical institutions in the world, and yet we have a population of people who are sick and who are deeply, deeply traumatized. And we know that 56.3% of children in this city have experienced one or more major traumas. We know that as children's lives go on, that unless they are treated, that gets worse. It will invariably lead to worse health outcomes, to a higher likelihood of suffering from addiction, and a higher likelihood that a young person will themselves be either a victim or a perpetrator of a violent crime because hurt people hurt people. And we have not been able to interrupt that cycle. And so that's what prompted this bill was these students from Frederick Douglass High School. When you think about what they were telling you, how then does the bill specifically help to address that? What are, what are the details of the bill that people can look at and say, I get how everything those students were talking about is being addressed and heard in this in this legislation? Sure. So, you know, we went back, we did some research, we looked at what other places across the country and across the world are doing to address trauma. But Wes, as you know very well, Baltimore is a very unique place. Yes, it and is. What is happening in California sometimes may not work in West Baltimore or East Baltimore. And so, you know, we decided that we need to be really intentional about listening to the communities that are here and not being driven by some national intervention. What we heard as we started listening in rec centers, in libraries, in barbershops was the need for really a citywide interagency approach to reducing childhood trauma. So the legislation does three things. One is that it creates a citywide task force consisting of 34 people, pediatrician, couple clinicians, students, educators, parents, folks with an explicit racial equity lens, because we know that racism and white supremacy have driven so much trauma in communities of color throughout our city. It creates this task force. The task force will set up goals, metrics, data, identify short and long-term outcomes to reduce childhood trauma. They'll come before the city council each six months and report out. Number two is that it trains all city agencies and including some state agencies because we know that in Baltimore, 
as you've said on your show, you did a whole thing on governance, that our police department, the Department of Juvenile Services, DJS, our school system, we are not able to legislate these agencies. And so for the non-city agencies, we have created memorandums of understanding, but we wanted to name every city agency, and that includes Rec and Park, the library system, the Department of Public Works, housing, the Department of Transportation, that what we really need is systems change. And so the bill legislates that city agencies need to get trained in understanding both the science, the symptoms, and effective response to a person experiencing trauma. So for example, if a young person is going through a depressive episode in a rec center, the correct response is not to yell at them or kick them out. And then the third thing this bill does is it calls for each of the city agencies to work together with the task force to rewrite policies and procedures with a lens toward reducing re-traumatization. Because one of the things that we heard again and again and again is that so much of the trauma in our city has been caused by us, by government. Whether it's redlining, whether it's you know, more recently, the Pohomes water crisis, where people were without water for multiple weeks, that should be simply unacceptable in the wealthiest state, in the wealthiest country in the world. And so this bill has us go back, review all of our policies and procedures, and rewrite them with a lens toward reducing re-traumatization across Baltimore. And when you think about the long-term impact of this legislation, what do you hope that in five years and in 10 years and in 50 years, people will look back and say that this legislation accomplished? One of the dynamics that happened when we were writing this legislation is that a good friend and mentor I know of both yours and mine, that was Congressman Elijah Cummings, had really started this movement on a national level he held the first ever congressional hearing about childhood trauma a few months before he passed away. And then he held a massive convening here in Baltimore where he brought together leaders from across the city. And he really tasked us with focusing in on this problem and not repeating the old behaviors of the past where people compete for credit and grants and media and money and all the rest, but to be able to work with each other. And he had been a huge mentor and driving part of my life professionally. So I started talking to him about what does this look like in Baltimore? What would it look like to legislate it? And he and I had planned to do a second convening uh, with a lot of different groups, uh, and then he passed away. And so part of his legacy was I introduced an amendment to this bill to rename it the Elijah Cummings Healing City Act. To your question about what I hope the legacy is, is that we can begin the process of collectively healing ourselves. I was just with Dr. Christina Bethel, who's one of the nation's experts on this, and she talks a lot about how we are the medicine that the interesting thing about trauma is that it comes from not feeling safe and secure in attachment and in relationships. And so the healing, the medicine, 
really is about us and us deciding collectively that this is our city, these are our children, and we're not going to continue to neglect, abandon, and leave them out on the street, in some cases literally, but that we are going to collectively wrap our arms around this issue, these children, and become one healing city. This is Future City here on WYPR, and I've had the pleasure of speaking with Baltimore Councilmember Zeke Cohen, who represents the 1st District in Southeast Baltimore. Councilmember Cohen, congratulations on the legislation. Thanks for all you do, and uh, looking forward to find ways to link up with you in the future. Honored to be with you, Wes. So as we close out today's show, I just want to leave everyone with a few thoughts about the issue of trauma, truth, and reconciliation. I had the joy and pleasure of actually traveling with my family over the New Year's, and we went to Colombia. And we got a chance to see a few different cities there, but there's one city that that really caught my attention and one place that I'll never forget, and that's the city of Medellin. This was a city back in 2002, was the most violent city in the world, a city where literally thousands of bodies were falling. It's also a city that in 2015 was named the most innovative city in the world. It's a city in 2019, we're in the most violent community of the most violent city in the world back in 2002. And I was walking around with my eight-year-old daughter and my six-year-old son. The reason I bring up that story is this. That was a generation ago, literally a generation ago that a place was so violent that only police units were walking through and armed and military units were walking through. And now my wife and I are walking through with our kids. It took being deliberate. It took being thoughtful. It also took understanding and dealing with this measure and these elements of trauma. It meant understanding your past, but also knowing that you wouldn't be enslaved by it. It meant knowing that you have to be able to look at pain and understand that that pain and seeing that pain, healing from that pain, became necessary. One of the things I was really taken by in Medellin was this museum that they had down there, El Museo de la Memoria. It's a museum of thinking about the past and understanding just how many people, how many families, how much carnage, how much violence took place there. And they had pictures that would light up and then go dark, light up and go dark. The pictures were oftentimes of families at family reunions and celebrations. And the picture would be in color until the whole picture went black and white except for one person. The person that was still in color was a person who was either still missing or a person who was presumed dead. They wanted to understand that regardless of why that person was still in color in that picture, that's a person. That's humanity. And that's something that we have to respect. The amount of trauma that our city has seen over these past decades has been brutal. And since 2002, in Iraq and Afghanistan combined, there have been a little over 5,200 service members that have died in combat. During the same time period in Baltimore City, the 30th largest city in this country, the number is a little over 4,800. So almost the same amount of service people that have died in Iraq and Afghanistan combined, we've lost here in Baltimore City. And that doesn't even include the multiple other forms of violence that existed, state violence, etc. If we're going to be hopeful about our future, we must be honest about our past. We must be willing to go through our own truth and reconciliation within our city. We must be able to own our past and know that it's an important component to understand when we think about our future. We must be honest about the kind of trauma 
that we've asked our children to live in and experience and know that dealing with that trauma holistically, dealing with that trauma thoughtfully, and dealing with that trauma in a real fashion is the only way we move forward. That's what our future city is going to demand. And that's what we as residents of that future city must also demand. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at I am Westmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.